So, welcome everybody to the seminar. Um, I'm going to pass around, whoever didn't receive one last week, I'm going to pass around the um, schedule for next semester. There's uh, one last seminar after today on the 1st of December. We don't meet next week because of Thanksgiving. And Professor Ed Kaplan is speaking on the 1st of December, which is in a few weeks from today. So I'll pass this around. And I'll also pass a sign-up sheet if anybody's on our email list. Please feel free to sign up, and I'll make sure you're on this. Um, so it's with pleasure and honor that I, I introduce to you Professor Barry Cosman. He's the current uh, and new director of the New Institute for the Study of Secularism in Society and Culture. Um, that's at Trinity College in Hartford. He just moved here from London recently, a couple of months ago. He's a sociologist and a research professor in public policy and law at Trinity. Today's title is called Judeophobia and the New European Extremism. Uh, Barry Cosman was the executive director of the JPR Institute for Jewish Policy Research in London, and he was the associate director of the HRB Park Center for Jewish and Non-Jewish Relations at the University of Southampton in London. He was formerly the director of research at the unit, unit of the Board of um, Deputies of the British Jewish Community, um, director of research for the North American Council of Federations in New York. He was the founding director of the North American Jewish Data Bank at, the, at City University of New York, where he did extensive demographic <laughs> and sociological studies of the Jewish community in North America. And he was the member of the doctoral faculty in sociology at City University of New York at the Graduate School and a fellow of the Institute for Advanced Studies at Hebrew University. He's now the joint editor of a new, um, sorry, I skipped, he's the, the joint editor of the academic journal Patterns and Prejudice and the co-editor with Paul Ignaski of Essex University in, in England of a very important book that recently came out called The New Anti-Semitism, Debating Judeophobia in the 21st Century Britain. So it's a great pleasure that I welcome you. Okay. Well, Bobby will be proud of what you said. <laughs> the, um, the book, if you, in case anybody's ever seen it, this is the book where it's under that uh, child referred to. It's uh, anti-Semitism, Debating Judeophobia in 21st Century Britain. What I'm going to talk about today, um, I don't get anybody get delusions of grandeur. I actually had lunch with important people today. Um, didn't have a chance to change. Um, but it was a, I had lunch with uh, Charles Curran, a Catholic theologian, and a number of others. And the issue that came up there was something which I think relates to this topic, which is the question of modernism and anti-modernism. The, the European, new European extremism, um, as I see it, is about reactionary forces. Now, reactionary forces normally pick on somebody, usually the Jews. The interesting thing today is the reactionary forces in Europe are found not only on the far right, which has traditionally been there, the Catholic Church since Vatican II has been modernist in its outlook, and therefore the anti-modernist and the traditional anti-Semitism of the Catholic Church, I would suggest to you, has abated in the last 20 or 30 years, um, especially notable under, despite the fact that John Paul II was a conservative in religious terms, he was very much a liberal and an ecumenist um, and in, in, in world terms, in, in you know, secular terms, if I can use 
<laughs> that phrase about the pontiff. Um, the, uh, so those are the kinds of issues that I've been thinking today, and I thought they were actually directly relevant in some ways to, to the subject I'm talking about now, the new European extremism. Now, I did send a paper in advance. It was short, six pages. Did any of in this class read it? I read it. I get an okay. A. All right. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to get marked. I wanted you to read <laughs> I wanted people to, to, to read All right. So it gives me an idea that about you know, sort of 10% uh, as usual, you don't do much better than the average group of 18-year-olds. Um, so maybe I should go through this paper um, a little. Um, I'll explain to you the provenance of this, because I think this, following the, the, the uh, book that uh, Paul and I uh, co-edited, um, which was really um, in response to the upsurge of anti-Semitic, what we call Judeophobic, um, sentiments and expressions and fashion, um, at least in Britain, um, following really 2000. 2000 it began with the Second Intifada increased dramatically after 9-11. It's um, ebbed a little bit in the last um, few months uh, for a number of reasons, such as being in the front line yourself. Um, you, the, um, we decided to, to take on another project when I was at the uh, Institute for Jewish Policy Research, which was um, to look at this um, new European extremism as we saw it. In other words, a new European extremism rather than new European anti-Semitism anti on, on a wider scale. And we recruited a number of um, authors to give us views from various uh, countries uh, about this. I'll pass around some uh, details of this so you can see. This is off the, web, off the website of the, of the JPR. It's actually off the website of something called AXT, Anti-Semitism anti and Xenophobia Today. Um, and what is attached to it is, is a, um, an outline of a book that Paul and I are editing, um, which will come out beginning of next year, uh, from Profile Books, um, on, under the title, The New European Extremism, Hating Israel, America, and the Jews. And as I say, I think that is about anti-modernism, um, and those three countries, or those, three, those two countries and that one people, um, <clears throat> are normal targets for this kind of uh, thinking. Um, so let me start off with what, what I try to do in the paper. I'm going to read it to you. Um, those of you who want to um, look at it, um, it's on the website, isn't it? Okay. Um, what I try to do is put this extremism and, and, and its linkage to what I call in this paper here, which is a kind of um, introduction to, the, to our part of our introductory essay to the book. Um, in a political context, and to show some of the political, some of the content that is involved in um, in this topic, and I've defined extremism. I will indulge myself a little bit. Indulge um, my definition of extremism is open or tacit support to the ideas and policies of totalitarian political ide ideologies and parties, as well as Manichaean ideas. The clearest. And then, I, and then I go on to attack the, uh, say something's rotten in the state of Denmark. And then I um, focus in on the election results in the French Republic in 2002. And most of you have heard of uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen. Um, I know he did pretty well 
in those elections. But if you add up the two Front National type parties, right wing, uh, uh, those with a kind of nostalgia for Vichy in the, in the old world, uh, they got 19.1%. And the variety of communists and Trotskyists polled 12.4%. Which means that in a free election in the, in the early 2002, nearly a third, one in three French voters, supported, supported or voted for totalitarian ideologies. Um, which I think it's fair to say yeah, did in the 20th century bring us interesting things like the gulags, death camps, wars, purges, misery and death for millions of people. Now, voting for those kind of parties in the 1930s is interesting because you didn't have a historical record. Voting for those kind of parties in 2002, I would suggest, um, suggests a very different mindset. It's a kind of amnesia, if not uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, so why do large numbers of Europeans, um, at least French people, um, vote for these? And why is there this extremism um, abroad in Europe at, at this particular moment? And I'm sure all the Francophones and Mr. Chirac's um, people in the audience will come at me, well, picking on him especially, picking on France, but it's a very good example. Um, now, as we know, um, the attraction of it is, is there is an attraction of extremism to large numbers of people, and 20th century uh, Europe has suggested it's it's pretty it's pretty good ratings. Um, this present generation has not, as I said, um, experienced war, unemployment, mass unemployment, or hunger. Interesting. Um, moreover, as I said, they've had the historical record plainly before him. Um, and that record suggests that this utopian idealism, if you don't even regard it as extremism, but you regard it as forms of utopian idealism, which is a light way of expressing those ideas, it undoubtedly, the record suggests, produces hate, prejudice, discrimination, and always, all, almost always ends in some kind of tragedy of some kind. The Downfall is a good German film to attack. The answer, I believe, is that there's clear incentives and motives for hatred and prejudice in the world, um, particularly of the political variety. Um, it serves also the personal agendas of individuals. It meets their psychological need to make sense of the world around them. It's, uh, it's particularly true regarding Jews, or making sense of the Jews in, in Europe. So what I try to do in this paper is offer a logical, political, and psychological explanation for what it first sight might appear to some of you as being irrational thinking, supporting utopian idealism, extremism, rather nutty, lunatic politicians of various descriptions. Um, and what I'm trying to do, what I don't dwell in this paper, is on the usual manifestations as they are portrayed, um, or, or usual indicators which are shown. And the usual indicators are, of course, anti-Semitic incidents, in other words, criminal, criminal crime statistics of some kind. That's, that's what really anti-Semitic incidents fall into. Um, hate crimes. Or in terms of electoral, electoral support, which often depends on the kind of political system, the electoral system in any particular country. I mean, there are uh, kind of, uh, peculiarities of political systems that tend to push to, to explain away why certain countries produce more political extremists or political parties than others. Um, and instead, in this, I, I um, 
concentrate on the intellectual processes that underlie the behavior and the actions of the perpetrators. And I look at the, um, the role of the intelligentsia in creating the climate of bigotry. And what I do is I look back historically and suggest that, in fact, the European intelligentsia, um, even the most fashionable portions of it, appeared at one time to be sort of relatively avant-garde members of it, have a record um, which is not very good uh, on this. And looking at um, the role of intellectuals, I, I contrast, and, and right, let me step back a bit, one of the great themes in European history, and many of the kind of um, weak or liberal views of history are, is, is, is condemnation of the mob, the kind of rude, I don't know if any people know, the rude version of history, the kind of the, 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 the um, brutal, ignorant mob, in contrast with the um, uh, urbane, um, well, well-meaning intellectuals um, and elites. Um, and I would suggest that this, in fact, is a liberal myth. That, in fact, many large numbers of, of the um, uh, intellectuals and elites have, in fact, indulged in pretty miserable things. Um, and, in fact, the mob, or the uneducated and the ignorant, actually are not very good for extremists and totalitarian parties because they lose interest and concentration very quickly. <laughs> now, if they get drunk and forget the purpose which they're, <laughs> they're burning things down, and then they go around and burn down the wrong place. And if you think about it historically, of course, um, um, it's uh, Dr. Goebbels, PhD Heidelberg, you know, 1922, and his friends, and even some of the Einsatz group, and I think uh, someone suggested they were pretty well educated Germans, a lot of um, university graduates amongst them, um, actually were, were, were better for this kind of work. Um, but of course, where does the myth begin? It begins actually with it's sort of Adam Smith, uh, one uh, favorite probably for some of you, at least in Chicago. Um, an instructed and intelligent people are always more decent and orderly than an ignorant and stupid one. That's um, I'm suggesting, at least in this particular case, it might not be true. So that's uh, one uh, piece. And this kind of physicality and boorishness of the benighted against the refinement and sophistication of the learning classes um, can, can be argued a great deal. Um, Now, what I do is then go on and, and, and go into a number of people like, uh, I've just had some ideas, um, which, let me go with John Maynard Kane. Why, why the importance of ideas and ideology and intelligences in this thing, of course, is <clears throat> because, as uh, Keynes, another economist, suggested, ideas, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. I am sure the power of vested interests is vastly exaggerated compared to the gradual encroachment of ideas. Nietzsche, of course, claimed that the root of political psychology is uh, resentment, or he put it in French, resentment, um, was a distinguished social emotion of modern societies. Um, his thesis was that other people's or groups' success breeds resentment, and resentment in terms breeds um, it's a passion bound up with the identity of, of, of the one who feels it, 
feels it and he rejoices in damaging others by virtue of their membership of the targeted group. Moreover, particularly in insecure epochs, hatred brings out brings order out of chaos and decision out of uncertainty. So I'm just applying the same thing all over again. Why do certain groups of people feel insecure at the moment in Europe, I guess? Um, and I've looked back, and um, one of the themes I, uh, I've latched on to is, is the, F the essay uh, by Julien Bender, La Tarizon des Clercs, uh, which is in 1927, in which Bender actually made a rather dire uh, prophecy about um, European intellectual classes. It was really an attack on people like Danuncia, the kind of romantics who supported Mussolini and his imperial grandeur or riches for imperial grandeur and delusions. And um, Bender was, spoke of the intelligentsia of his day in Europe by saying that they had abandoned their traditional panoply of philosophical and scholarly ideals, whereby for centuries they exhorted men to deaden the feeling of their differences and instead come to support and favour the intellectual organisation of political hatreds. And I know it's a very good example, good um, uh, shorthand for what happened in Europe between the wars, the intellectual organisation of political hatreds. Um, texts and books were produced, um, and they were right, regarded as reasonably intellectual. And then go back into uh, looking in the Germans, we can go back and look at uh, Wagner, um, and uh, some incidents. But uh, one of the um, points, you know, one of the prescient words, and I've looked for sort of people who, who seem to be prophets um, of, their, of this, um, I would say, um, episodic or even cyclical um, pattern in Europe. Um, one of the leading light of the Aufklärung, the German Enlightenment, was Lichtenberg, scientist. Um, and he suggested in one of his uh, more trenchant aphorisms uh, the following. Today we are trying to spread knowledge everywhere. Who knows if in centuries to come there will not be universities for re-establishing our former ignorance. Probably thinking of Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow, something like that in the 1970s. Um, But if you look at you know the, the work of Wagner and Liszt, who are regarded as um, intellectuals or elites, or the intellectual elites of their days, um, you can see some of this taken up. Their ideas taken up later by someone like von Treitschke. Um, von Treitschke was the greatest German historian of his age, um, professor of history at the University of Berlin. In 1879, he was the one who coined the phrase, the Juden sind unser Unglück, the Jews are our misfortune. Tragica, of course, died in 1896, but his ideas lived on. Fifty years later, this identical phrase, of course, became a slogan on the front of the Nazi party newspaper, Bischdown, um, which was used, obviously, to inspire the stormtroopers. Now, obviously, postmodern fashion would suggest that some of these things I'm talking about are coincidences. Um, yet, I think it's probably significant that the um, publisher of this newspaper, Julius Streicher, was eventually tried at Nuremberg um, and executed for, in the indictment, in crimes against humanity, which is an interesting 
point in terms of the argument I'm making here. He was an actual, the actual um, statement of the judge was he'd been convicted of poisoning the minds of a generation. So it's a resounding endorsement, really, of what Keynes had just said about the power of ideas. So it's equally important, obviously, for us uh, at this particular moment to note this innovation in international law, because we hear a tremendous amount of international law and human rights. Um, not a lot of this idea that ideas and words have uh, consequences, and the incitement to hatred and advocacy of murder and genocide is as much a crime as an act itself, and we have a precedent for somebody being executed for that purpose. Now, once we understand that ideas are freestanding and powerful, we sort of get an indispensable tool for combating some of the insidious arguments, of course, that victims cause their own problems. Um, and it's often, and again, that is often be applied uh, to Jews. Um, what I'm going to then go on to suggest is that um, there are intellectuals both of the left and the far right, far left, far right, although they're moving into the centre all the time in Europe, who now are increasingly um, using um, expressions, terms, and etc. Uh, this is journalists, pundits, moralists, pontificators, even some church people. Um, a barrage of agitprop, um, interestingly enough, against America, we're actually neoconservatives, um, Israel and Jews. Um, a lot of the problems and uncertainties of Europe are caused by one or two or three of these things in combination. So what I really try to do um, is look at what's new about this quality in terms of, what is it new in terms of what I've, you know, what I've done is try to show the 18th and 19th century um, provenance for some of these ideas um, and 20th century action and um, um, experience. But what is new about them in the 21st century in Europe? Well, what is interesting is that a lot of this is anti-modernity. But it's the, as I say, it's the anti-modernity of the old Soviet Union under Brezhnev and some of that. Um, or conservative thinking, if you want to put it the other way around. It's definitely modernity, it's, it's definitely um, disillusion and, and antagonism to what we might call Western free market liberalism, um, which in the minds of many of these people in Europe is associated with the United States and Jews. Um, and we have a number, a range of forces now in Europe which are not working in concert, but actually if you look at their um, ideas and their, and their publications, you come up with the same thing. These are this kind of a red-brown-green alliance. Now these people don't particularly like each other. Right? So the red are the far left, the browns are the old brown right, and the green is the new um, Islamist, uh, Muslim. Politicizing Islam, uh, which is increasingly under the control of the Muslim Brotherhoods and its offshoots in Europe. Um, and it's what we might call a new kind of anti imperialism of fools. Um, it's one of the few things that you'll uh, uh, um, see that the songs, in this, uh, uh, songs or the, or the, um, the sound bites, slogans are exactly the same. Well, it was very interestingly, one of our writers, a man called Perper, writing from Austria, Austrian um, writer, university academic, wrote, wrote, writes about a um, demonstration outside um, the Jewish Community Center in Vienna uh, a year or two ago, in which there was a group of people saying, 
um, Austria, for the, uh, Austria for the Austrians, Palestine for the Palestinians. And it was, right, right, it was um, well, we can imagine where the, the actual Jewish community center people were supposed to go. I guess they were supposed to get on trains for Poland at that moment. Um, but it was, um, that was, it was the, the demonstration of the Revolutionary Communist League in uh, Austria, uh, which was joined by a number of right-wing people. Um, so it's, you know, this is equal opportunity. Um, now, I do, in my paper, go into some sociological theory about Pareto's theory of revolution, um, which focuses on social mobility or frustrated social mobility of certain classes is what creates um, antagonism and anger towards uh, others in terms of what Bender and others and even Nietzsche have suggested. Um, there is no doubt that the, the mobility for what a, the, new, the new class, the, um, the European intellectuals are becoming frustrated because in fact, universal, I mean, you take my own country, I guess that's one of the reasons I'm here. University professors have, have lost status and um, buying power in, in creation in, in relation to other people. Um, uh, when I first went to university, 1960s, a university professor isn't as much as a, a good lawyer. And then that's not today, it's probably 15% of his luck. Um, and so that's, there's a very important issue here uh, about the um, economic downturn in Europe. Um, and the forfeiture of social and economic status um, as a result of the big bang in finance organized by Mrs. Thatcher in, in the city of London, which favors entrepreneurs, people with commercial activity, publics, over public services and teaching and people like that. Uh, in, in, in effect, if you want to, and it plays out in some of the evidence we look at, Financial Times readers are favored over Guardianistas, readers of the Guardian. Um, who have therefore become frustrated and angry with the current state of the world dominated by you-know-who. Um, now, to some extent, the French left uh, and intelligentsia went down this road before. Um, we saw it that France had its problem in the 20s and 30s, the Vichy regime. Uh, and we also saw some of the, of, the, of the reaction of an intelligentsia to their frustrations. I won't go through, obviously, it was in Germany. As you know, during the expulsion of the professors and the Jewish students in the 1930s was met with hardly any demonstrations by other members of the campus community. There were no boycotts of universities or withdrawal of labor or any of those other kinds of things you'd expect when your colleagues get the sack for their um, origins rather than for their incompetence. Um, if you look at the French uh, prominent writers, André Guigues, Paul Claudel, François Mauriac, Jules Romain, Dugard, even André Malraux, until nearly the end of the war, the rule um, in France was really silence or inaction. It's very interesting if you look, and one of the people who supply some of this information is Michael Curtis, who wrote the verdict on Vichy. Um, silence of the, of the left in France uh, during the um, uh, this year regime is interesting, and I think it is important to that. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir strongly influenced the uh, climate of intellectual opinion over the world. The heroic Simone de Beauvoir 
worked for a time at a cultural program for Radio Nationale in occupied Paris. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, her companion, happily replaced a dismissed Jewish professor of philosophy. Liberal professions were no, were no better. 1999 it was until the French uh, Doctors' Association um, acknowledged that the basic values of their profession had been violated when they acquiesced in legislation that discriminated against and excluded their Jewish colleagues from practice. They took to 1999 for the French Medical Association to apologize to the, to the uh, Jews who lost their jobs and expelled. And, so I just want to put that in, into context. Here. We're not, you know, and and the, the, some of these people are still around, of course. I mean, longevity is no issue. Now, what's new about this? I mean, what am I really saying? It's all it's the same thing all over and again. Well, what's new about it is is that it's spread more. There are more people out there with these ideas. As I said, <coughs> it's not just the far right. Um, it, it, we're seeing elements of, of reds and greens. Um, The morality and character flaws of the intellectual elite, um, which I question, of course, um, uh, is, 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 has different implications in a, in a society where 5% of the people go to university to one where 30, 40, or 50% of people go to university, the younger generation. So there's the, the reach of, of uh, universities. Um, and of course, these universities, as I say, have a history of prejudice and discrimination. If you think about it, no, that's one of the growth, again, right, even in this country until the 50s, 60s, you had quotas, in effect, numerous clauses in Europe, religion tests in most universities for many, many years. So you know, higher education has never been um, free of these kind of things. We see it um, as, as being um, a world of uh, liberty and tolerance and all the rest of it. Um, and that, combined with what I would call the nouvelle déclassé, the, the new status of, of, of intellectuals, probably explains, I think, a lot of the kind of anti-Israel boycott and things like that, which is around this tendency to kind of lash out. Um, now, why do we call it Judeophobia, not anti-Semitism? Mm -hmm. um, well, in a European context, anti-Semitism these days means eliminationist, genocidal politics. You can't get away from it. Everybody will turn around and say, and I, we face them, and I've done the debates and talks, and seen people on TV and all the rest of it. And someone will turn around and say, look, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not a, an anti-Semite, because I'm not a Nazi. I don't wear armbands and shiny boots. And to the mass of the population, that is acceptable. It's an acceptable answer. Anti-Semitism, an anti-Semite is somebody who wants to kill large numbers of Jews. Discriminate against them, putting them on a reservation, I don't know, taxing them heavily or differently to other people is not regarded as particularly anti-Semitic. That's <coughs> um, regarded kind of forms of prejudice or cultural or social engineering. Um, but you cannot get away today in, in most of us in Europe by calling somebody an anti-Sema. As, as um, <laughs> two people, um, George Galloway, John Pilger, people who are known for their tremendous antipathy towards Israel and say very nasty things about they, well, both of whom have, have, have um, said, you know, what do I, my first thing when anybody calls me an anti-Semite is I reach for my you know, defamation or libel. Um, 
it's, you know, that's, that's their reaction immediately. I'm not a Nazi, because that's what it means. And we have some evidence that, in, at least in uh, British courts, which are very, very amenable to, um, are very easy to get defamation cases. You don't actually have to prove that it's wrong. You don't have to prove that it's you know, done you harm. It's, to point out that you're a member of the, you're a general in the SS, probably might do you some harm somewhere. Um, uh, it's, but that, if that is regarded by some, some juries or judges as, as, as being um, unacceptable um, background information, you've got a problem. But the other thing about it is, is that most of the theory <coughs> is essentially political. It is not racial. It is not biological. That's the other side of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism in the European context is a form of racism which is associated with biological prejudices, biological racism. Um, you know, measuring heads and uh, sort of color-coding of the population and things like that. And that's, none of these people really uh, talk about it. The other thing about it is that at the in, it's not very individualized. It's hardly ever applied to individuals. It's, it's, it's kind of class thing. Hardly any, it's very interesting. Today, everybody's very, very careful not to pick on any particular individual. And again, maybe because there are laws, both of these defamation and libel laws, and at the same time, um, there's class um, protection and race relations acts and things like that among most of Europe. So it's hardly, you know, it's very, it's not uh, personal except when down a dark alley or something like that, um, when it gets personal. Um, but that's not what I'm discussing here. The, the other thing about it is, is that it's hardly economic. The big, well, one of the main attractions to large numbers of people in Europe in the, in the 19th and 20th century of anti-Semitism was an economic agenda. The idea that the Jews, again, as a modernizing force, had too much, had, had too many positions of positions of authority, power, or placement, but especially um, the role of Jewish business and banking and things like that. Now, interestingly enough, very little of this is is economically motivated. Um, the, the economics hardly ever comes up. It's kind of um, um, material envy is not really articulated in any kind of way by these people. Which I guess if you're on, you know, if you're trying to, you know, um, advocate on behalf of oil shakes, it's probably understandable uh, on occasion. Um, <laughs> difficult. So it's not racist, it's not economic. Um, it tends, and I'm sure everybody else has gone through it, it, it sees the Jews as a, as a collectivity. Um, it's, it's not personal. Um, as a result, there are, it does allow the option for some careerist or even collaborationist Jews to take part in this, in, in, in this process. And that's another point which is different to the anti-Semitism in the past. It's more like the old communist anti-Semitism. Communist Party would allow individual Jews in, uh, so they could close down the Jewish schools in the Soviet Union. Better, better Jew signs of paper than Stalin himself. Um, but that's a I'll take questions at the end. Um, but but it's quite important to, to realise that that, um, uh, that people of Jewish uh, extraction. Some people would say most of the Jewishness extracted can, can participate 
in, 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 in some of this um, activity. Um, so that's another piece. Of course, however, however um, uh, nationalistic you were as a German, the Nazi party wasn't going to recruit you or allow you to take a position of power and authority. You obviously see that, and that's the uniqueness. And that's, again, why this anti-Semitism doesn't fit. Because anti you can't be anti-Semites. The Nazis wouldn't let, you know, didn't you want to have sex with Jews? We know, they know, these people. So that's why I'm not an anti-Semite. Understand how these, this, this built up anti view of what anti-Semitism is um, and how it kind of rebounds against uh, Jews in some kind of way. Um, now, certainly, the Judeophobia is a good word because it means fear and loathing. And there's lots of fear and loathing going on about Israel and sometimes Americans and sometimes Jews. Um, And that is tied up with a lot of anti-modernism. So, I think, in terms of anybody here interested in strategies, which I spent some time thinking about, how people should uh, react to this and how the Jewish community should operate, the European Jewish community should operate as well, we have to be careful to make, to, to make it quite clear that what we're talking about is nasty people, not Nazis. Right? Nasty, but not Nazis. And that's, you know, that's what you have to say all the time. It is using the epithet Nazi doesn't work. As we know, its, it's, it's, it's uh, currency has been devalued because even Israelis throw at each other all the time. So, you know, it's, we get a pretty bad situation. But that's, in some ways, it's you know, sort of a, kind of post-modernist uh, reality. Um, and it's not easy to refute um, some of the, some of the, um, I, some of the responses, if you start accusing people of, of being Nazi. Um, what I've tried to explain here and, and suggest why there are strident calls for academic boycotts of Israeli universities and scholars, campaigns for economic divestment from Israel, but not, of course, actions against states such as China and Sudan. And that's where we, I think, have to always say, yeah, well, that's okay, you don't like the Jews, you don't like Israel, but why do you like these other people? Why aren't they um, in your uh, gun sites? Why the pacifist Tibetans and uh, the Dalai Lama, is he, why are they inherently less deserving than perhaps Palestinians? Raped and pillaged, uh, murdered Africans in Sudan, not worthy of a boycott or a petition at any Europe, British university until the beginning of this year. Not one. Um, it might be that, of course, the Tibetans and Africans are just not very nice people. I doubt that any of these people admit that. I think what, it, what the, the reality is they have the wrong sort of oppressors. And again, back to, to some of these alliances. Um, if your oppressor is a communist or an Arab, don't look for many of these people to take much notice of you. European elites are obsessed with the sins and the crimes of the Jews again. Um, it's not unexpected, it's not unprecedented, but the fact that they do it without actually being very much interested in many other people's sins and crimes, I think it's, it's fascinating. Um, it's, it's a reality that this, that what we've created here is, is an anti-Semitism but there's not a racism. This Judeophobia, therefore, and this is very important for me to point it out, is not part of general racism into them, to these mindsets. Um, and therefore, the collateral damage is that free Tibet is lost because free, Tibet, free Palestine is much more important. Um, but 
the wrapping up of this in a, in a more globalist um, framework strikes me uh, as, a, as a better Jewish response than the traditional one of refighting World War II. It's not refighting World War II. You have a much more difficult situation in Europe today because these, these um, uh, arguments, um, criticisms, and general hostility um, are both tempered, very cleverly um, uh, directed, um, um, and what am I say? Um, and framed in terms which, which are very, which are hard um, to react to, in, on, on the specificity of the case. In other words, by just arguing um, in defence of, you know, you know, the question is, when did you last beat your wife? And any defence to that is difficult. Thank you. So um, I thought I'll take the prerogative of uh, asking the first question. I was wondering if, if you can maybe elaborate on this notion of anti-modernism. So while you were speaking, I was thinking there's a young PhD student here named Ben Madley who's doing research tracing uh, the German experience in Namibia and how people who committed genocide, Germans colonized Namibia and they killed up to a million Namibians and a lot of the people who were serving in the German army at the time went back to Germany and became uh, engaged in the state apparatus and in the military. So in a sense, even though Nazism had a lot of sort of anti-modernist rhetoric, it was still very much, I would argue, a modernist uh, enterprise. So, so at one level, I was wondering if you could speak on that. And now I'm also thinking too, in terms of the contemporary context, um, in terms of globalization, you have people like Zygmunt Bauman and Anthony Giddens that are looking at how um, globalization brings together people as much as it brings people, it marginalizes people. And I'm thinking of the French context today, where you have anti-modernist, maybe political or social movements, but are they not created by globalization and sort of neoliberal, modern economic development? Well, I mean, recognizing that, that these things happen and, and endorsing them to different things. I mean, you have to understand, a lot of people, um, you know, will accept the fact, I mean, you know, the, you know, the satellite technology, I might think the world's flat, but it's a reality. So I'd like the world to be flat, and I can go on suggesting it. But then, I mean, the, the, the ability of, of human beings to, to operate schizophrenically or in two minds is very different. It, the anti-modernism, can't be seen just as a reaction to, to it's not an anti-technology. If you take, I mean, many people would say, you know, the Nazi and fascist movements were anti-modern. There were throwbacks to one group of people wanted to be Vikings, the other people wanted to be a Roman emperor and Romans and have standards and all the rest of it. That doesn't mean to say that, that, that Mussolini, for instance, was not one of the biggest um, uh, patrons of modernist architecture. I mean, that was where it went, the modernist arts. Um, Hitler, that was a young generation, and they embraced. It was the, he was the first uh, politician to um, to use the aeroplane to uh, to do election you know, election campaigning. Um, the German nuts. I mean, the, the, the embrace of technology um, is, is quite clear. But when I'm talking about anti-modernism, I'm this is I'm talking about ideas. It's an ideas. It's, a, it's an ideology. It, it, it's a myth. It's a figment. But you know, there are certain parts of the modern world. I mean, 
you've got many people. I mean, you know, take the the, the uh, Islamic world today. Um, some of, take some of the Christian fundamentalists who are there. They, I mean, their embrace of, of, of the modern technology is, is clear. They were quite happy with all the modern gadgets and all the rest of it, but they're using them to to other ends. You know, with the great, I mean, and, and I'm running at the moment in, you know, trying to take on this institute and study of secularism in society and culture. And, you know, this takes me into, you know, talking to historians about Galileo and things like that. And, and the issue, of course, is, is the difference between science and technology. If you embrace the theory, you can break the products, right? The technological products are one thing. The, the scientific, uh, bringing, uh, embracing, or binding or, or, or accepting um, the, the scientific theory is another. I mean, this, this is very important. Now, you know, you've got the, I mean, again, we're winding the topic here. You have, you know, Kansas, Kansan farmers using, you know, genetically modified crops and all the rest of it, and then, you know, arguing for intelligent design on Sundays or in their school board. You know, I mean, it doesn't make sense, you know. You know, but you, you know, people can do that. You know, you, you argue against the theory that produces your income, right, in this case. Um, but, you know, that's, uh, I mean, you know, and, you know these people are exactly the same. Um, so I don't, I mean, I think anti-modernism, it's some of the products, of it. it's the societal and even psychological, social psychological, psychological outcomes we see up against, much more than some of the material Yes, um, people talk about phobias in this country, so there's homophobia. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, Greek, I had thought of phobia as fear, fear of. Mm -hmm. You talked about this as fear and loathing. Mm -hmm. Also, we talk in America about hate, hate crimes, hate speech. Um, then you also, in your paper, talked about resentment. To me, one of the benefits or nice things about the term anti-Semitism or anti-Jewishness mm -hmm. or anti Judaism is it doesn't try to name that emotion, and I don't know. My guess is some people hate Jews, and some people fear Jews, and some people loathe Jews, and some people resent Jews. So I I want you to 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 speak to that. If 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 you named the wrong emotion, um, but the behavior is still there, whether it's what they say or what they do, that's really what we're concerned about, isn't it? Well, I, what I'm telling you is, I mean, I mean, I, I'm willing to accept that that anti-Semitism. First of all, anti-Semitism was, was a word created by an anti-Semite. Right? So it might not be of a good provenance either, right? In, in terms of and, and Semitism is another word. I mean, and what are we talking about? It's plays. I mean, I, you, somebody accuses them. You sit on the BBC one night, and someone will accuse some. Arab guy of being anti-Semitic. He said, I can't be anti-Semitic, I'm a Semite. You know? And whether you like it or not, you know, Semitism, you know, is to do with comes out of linguistics, right? The Semitic languages, which was then created, you know, into racial theories and all the rest of it, that the people who spoke these languages were saying. What I'm telling you is in the practical world of politics today, okay, it is very difficult to use this term in a European setting. Now you maybe you can use it in, in, in New Haven. Um, and people will, you know, sort of be ashamed if you if you say that. But the fact is, it doesn't. The Judeophobia is. I, I think it's, it's an interesting thing because this is, you know, again, all the connotations of anti-Semitism are about death camps, right? And someone is, you know, it's, it's a difference between if all ill, if I said to say I feel sick now, 
and sick, sick men, only life-threatening diseases, how would I describe a common cold? That's the problem you have. It's a question of degree. Between black and white, right, philo-Semitism and anti-Semitism, there have to be a thousand shades of grey. Yeah? So, what, I, what, and what I'm saying is, as defined by these people, it's a get-out. You can't use it. I mean, it just, it, it has the instant retort of, I'm not anti-Semitic, you know, I love Jews, I went to a Holocaust Memorial Day, whatever it was, and, and you know, and, and my girlfriend's mother's brother is Jewish. Um, you know, um, um, that's what you get. And, and, and that, as far as large numbers of people, it's a convincing argument, right? To the middle ground, or whatever you want to call it, or the un, un, uninitiated. So that's what I'm saying. Judeophobia, however, is, is, is it, it works. It's, it's, and got, as you say, homophobia is, it is more than fear. It's fear and loathing. It's, it's, it works both ways. It's like, you know, arachnophobia or something like that. It means much more, you know? It works. Um, that's what I'm suggesting. It's not, it's not an ideal situation, but we're not... <laughs> an ideal, it's not an ideal solution, but we're not dealing with an ideal situation. It's a difficult one. And we have to realize that part of this is academic, and part of it is really practical in terms of community relations and defense. I'm confused by this. Good. The, Good. Uh, you say this is not racist. Uh, it's uh, most Judeophobia is political. And you point out very clearly in the last paragraph of your paper that uh, there's no outcry against Chinese occupation of Tibet and what's going on in the Sudan and, and so forth. So why the selectivity of the antipathy toward, toward the Jews? Uh, when you look up anti-Semitism in the dictionary, as I've done, uh, it's a coined phrase and it has nothing to do with the Semitic people. It is as coined, but I forget who, who coined the term. But uh, it's anti-Jewish, specifically. It's not anti-Semitic people. And so when you have this selectivity of what Jews are doing, why not call a spade a spade? Because it doesn't work. That's why I try to explain it. I mean, you, might, you, you can go on turning around and saying, you know, uh, you know I'm, a, I'm a duck and I quack, but these people think elephants quack. So you've got a problem, right? I mean, you know, how do you deal with it? You know, you've got to communicate. And so your problem is, and, and you're saying the selectivity. There's a difference between prejudice and racism. Right? It's a prejudice thing. Right? It's undoubtedly a prejudice. That it's not that this prejudice is not based on any theories of biological different hierarchies of, 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 of G <laughs> DNI. The DNA is a reality today. I mean, they just have to accept that. It's not the way it's their thoughts. I mean they, they dislike Jews other than for their biology. That's the difference. Yeah, I'll ask you the same question I asked Phyllis Chesler when she spoke in New Haven here a couple year, last year or so. But I'll use the appropriate word substitution. Would you regard either Michael Lerner or Noam Chomsky as Judeophobes? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's make it concrete here. Very concrete. Well, Michael Lerner, no. Since there was any evidence of Michael Lerner is. Is, uh, is, is, uh, I mean, he has he has a certain view of the of Jewish people, Jewish future. Um, I think that probably 
the beauty of, of, of the thing Judeophobic is, is that, you know, you, in some ways, in, it would be ridiculous to accuse a, a, a Jew of being anti-Semitic, because it, it does seem to be a pretty, pretty ridiculous to say on, on, on racial grounds you, 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 know, you want to eradicate. If we don't go down that road, you can't accuse them of being anti-Semitic, because not, well, you know, if, 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 and this is the, this is the, this is the, the kind of secular argument here, there's a problem. If, if anti-Semitism connects, and it, this happens all the time, I can't be an anti-Semite because Noam Chomsky said the same thing. Right? And he's obviously not a Nazi, he doesn't want to kill all his family and everybody else. So therefore, anti-Semitism is, is therefore put in this little box. Right? So what am I saying? No, I agree, I agree with that. These guys are not anti-Semites within that definition. Are they Judeophobic? If you, if you, if you see it as an not learner, because he has a commitment to a certain view of the Jewish future, right? and a certain, I would suggest that he has a, has a feeling of common destiny for Jews. Chomsky, I, I don't know well enough what, what he's actually written on this, although I've read some of his stuff many years ago. But, I mean, the, the, the issue there is, can you, can, you be, if, if, can you be antagonistic to the Jewish collectivity and its collective future rather than the individual organisms that make it up? And within this definition, I would say that the people who ran, for instance, the Yevsexia, the Jewish section of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, who decided to close down all Jewish schools and make an example of the Jews, right, as the, the first new Soviet man or woman, um, were Judeophobic. They didn't want to kill large numbers of Jews. What they wanted to do was they wanted to kind of uh, eradicate Jewish culture and, and, and Jewish civilization, if you want to call it that. It was, it was a, and, and, you know, in some ways it fits a Marx. I mean, Marx, if you go back to... Um, um, he had a hierarchy of, of what he called historic and ahistoric peoples, if you remember. So in other words, the Poles were okay because they had a state at one time, so a revived Poland would be okay, but the Slovaks never had a state, so therefore they weren't entitled to anything. He had a hierarchy, um, as most Europe Victorians did at that time. So, I mean, so these people regarded, you know, if, if Judy, the Jews are, you know, we're back to the whole thing. Starting by, the Jews are a class, therefore. If they're a class, right, or a religion, they don't, they don't require a national homeland. I mean, we're going back to these kinds of, kinds of things. <coughs> these people are deciding the nature of the Jewish group. Now, if the nature of the Jewish group is there's not much good about it, and you want to extinguish most of its cultural and other forms, I guess you can be... And you wouldn't put Chomsky in that category. I don't know. I'm just saying, I, don't, culture I, I don't know. I said, I said not, certainly not learn, right? But I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that you said a specific. You didn't give me enough of what. If you give me a quotation from it, I would have been able to tell you one way or another, right? But what I'm saying is, it is possible to have somebody, right, who was, I know. Um, let's let's take somebody, uh, uh, one of the, the former Soviet Politburo members of Jewish descent, and say yes, they were Judeophobic. They wanted to. They wanted. They wanted to. In the Jewish people as, a, as, a, as an entity of Jewish culture. It would be fair, and they probably would have admitted that. Um, can't one derive from your uh, talk about a Jewish collectivity that uh, to follow it up, there should be no criticism of the Israeli government. There are, there are things about the Israeli government and its policies 
that are extremely hurtful, I think, to Jewish people and to Jewish interests. And Jews who oppose them, are they to be considered out of the Jewish collectivity? Uh, I think that's a very wrong way of looking at it. Uh, uh, the, uh, the Israeli government, certainly in the last three, four years, has done things that have aroused uh, not only Jews, uh, and, not, uh, uh, and in Europe especially, uh, the anti-Semitism or anti-Jewishness or Judophobia is strongest in those European countries that were uh, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, most friendly to Israel. Uh, and it's in these countries that uh, that you are, you know, focusing, that that's the, the you know, the uh, yeah, 60 years ago. Well, it was 60 years ago. I mean, you know, we can talk about places. But I, I, I hate to say this, but I, I, maybe I, I live in a parallel universe, but I don't think I mentioned the state of Israel in the last half hour at all. No. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I mentioned it. So I don't know where you... Yes, but everything from. you say, you say, is, uh, is taken, can be taken, and, and your followers, many followers of your views take it, this is in defense of Israel as it is. Israel as it is. They, they, they don't, they, there are many Jewish people who cannot stand any criticism of Israel. Uh, or Sharon. You have no evidence to accuse me of that at all at the moment. I mean, I don't understand. You can make money that doesn't exist. What? What doesn't exist? The fact that many Jewish people, Jewish institutions in this country, uh, most Jewish organization, organization leaders, uh, Condemn any kind of uh, uh, criticism of, of the Israeli government. Talk about that's the very little to do. My, my topic today is Judeophobia and European extremism. And I haven't done that. So I, I think there is, there, I mean, I, I, obviously Israel is tied up in this kind of thing. But um, it depends. I mean, if, you know, I, I'm not going to, to go into this argument. I think, you know, um, Israel is a very important part of this argument, but I don't think the, the people who are putting forward these extremist opinions are really that concerned with the individual actions of specific Israeli governments. It's, a, it's, a, it's more of a, it's, it's a much it's an ideological commitment, it's about ideas, it's not about specific policies and where this is done or who puts in jail or you put out people out of jail or this. don't think that's what it's all about um, in this case. Um, you, you've sort of poo-pooed the, the, the idea that the biological argument against the Jews has any currency in the uh, extremists in Europe, but um, it seems to me that, that uh, the biological argument actually is, is alive and well in, in some form or another, especially amongst the, the National Front uh, demographic. I don't have any empirical evidence for that, but it just seems to me that their predisposition towards biological arguments also conditions their response towards Muslims and the, the Muslim underclass, and that and that's important because it's like one of the, the main differences between the scapegoating practice by the extreme left and the extreme right uh, is, for all their consensus on the scurrilousness of the Jews, they have a very different attitude about the Muslim underclass, uh, and um, that's dis disagreement. I think is important because it makes it much less likely that there would ever be a kind of popular front against the Jews that would be broad-based enough to become state ideology. But if you don't want to address that, just 
what well, does that say about the extremism right, of these two communities? What we're talking about is something in the ether and in the air. The, 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 I mean, I have to turn around and say that one of the, one of the, there's some militating factors about this which are important. One is that there is no political party, no political government, there's no government which represents a political party that's been elected on an anti-Semitic ticket in Europe in the last 30 years. And that's very important to realise that. So that's a gain from the, you know, the previous hundred years. So, I mean, I'm not trying to say this is, this is the point. And, and, and in fact, um, one of the reasons why I've moved it over into the elites and into the, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, the, the media and, and, and culture and all the rest of it, is because it doesn't play very well in, in, in terms of political votes anymore about Jews. Um, in, in many now, the problem you have about, I mean, we can do about the left and right. There are a number of lefts and a number of rights. But one of the reasons why we're looking at this in a number of different countries is because it is interesting that in, in Belgium, for instance, the Flamse Bloc actually likes Jews but doesn't like On the other hand, you've got the Freiheit Partei in Austria. Mr. Haider was a great friend of, of Hussein and still, uh, sadly Hussein it is, um, not Melech Hussein. Um, but um, <laughs> the, but, but, and, and he's still going. I mean, in Austria, the far right actually has, the, has an old former, you know, the kind of Austrian, you know, the Kaisers and the two Kaisers of the First World War, a kind of pro-Islamic um, attitude. Um, the anti-Turkish feeling and the rest of it comes not from the far right as much, not, interestingly enough, um, in, in politics. It comes out of the Catholic, the CDU, the Catholic Socialists, take a more, um, they're the ones that are the biggest about not letting Turkey into the, to the EU. But so, so the Hydra is a very good example. And this is the whole problem about, you know, when you go into racism, racism or racism, where do these people who, you know, um, how do they, they do create hierarchies, maybe, of, of, of groups. Whether it's biological, anybody really believes they're biological race, it doesn't play anymore. S sort of pseudoscience doesn't seem to operate. If you read their pamphlets, you read their books, and they're, they're hardly ever talking about the same stuff that, uh, you know, um, Rosenberg was talking about in, in the past. And it doesn't seem to work. But the point is, they have a political message. Who controls who, really? I mean, it's the whole question is, that the, you know, the blacks, Africans, whatever it is, are a danger. But in fact, you know, but they're really controlled by the Jews. So, you know, so this kind of thing. So this is the problem that you, you have, you know, that, that's, you know, sort of, it, it's, you know, the Jews are behind it all. Um, uh, that's how racism and things uh, come into it. There is there are sentiments about some groups still being cleverer than others, more manipulative. Mm -hmm. It's kind of conspiracy thing. They know some of these kind of hierarchies, uh, and you get it here with, with kind of some of these Aryan groups about you know solving all these things. But in fact, most Hispanics and blacks are under control of the Jews and things like that in this country. But I think that's where it comes out. It's a very crude thing. It's not the scientific racism. That's the whole point. It's not backed by, and this is very important, intelligentsia. You must have remember that in, in, in the past, there, you know, large numbers of professors and scientists and everything signed up to it until 1945. Very important to realize that it was a whole um, industry, if you want to call it that, but in, in academia you know, on this, which has is, which is vanished from every European um, place of higher learning. In a kind of follow-up for what I just asked, uh, how do you actually explain the fact or the idea that you mentioned um, that uh, you see on the left 
some kind of uh, resentment or the modernization uh, on uh, concepts, not on technologies. You know. yeah. How can you explain it? I mean, you, you might you might think that okay, on the right, uh, people will be more, you know, become more conservative. Uh, the left yeah. should be more open to ideas, you know. And <coughs> but it depends what you call conservative. I mean, yeah, so the most interesting thing is, I mean, in my youth, I visited the Soviet Union. It's one of the few places you couldn't get pornography, and they took the workers to the ballet. You know, I mean, in most places that would be regarded as relatively conservative attitude. You know, yeah, forced ballet on, on, on people and, and deprived them of pornography. And this but, this but, 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 but I mean, you know, so what's right and what's left? And that's my whole point. And, and modernism and anti modern or conservative things. It's very important to realize that, the, that a lot of this resentment on the left is, is that, I mean, and, I mean, you have to understand that in, in Europe there was a tremendous, there were very large communist parties, right, in France and Italy, very large communist parties, large ones that There's always been a very strong um, socialist sentiment, and there are still many people who are still sitting shiver for the Soviet Union. And, and they were in shock for about, from, I mean, I, I, one, one of my, one of our, one of our thinking, if you're looking in here, see some, some argument there, that the people, that they, were, they were kind of overwhelmed. First of all, they were, they were demoralized by Brezhnev and his kind of highly conservative view of, of the world. Was, was a, if, if, for a progressive force, inactivity was regarded as, 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 a, as you know, on all fronts, um, was, was a peculiarity. So you could see the, the sclerotic nature of, 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 the, of the Soviet uh, Communist Party, and it's um, and, and then what happened was that it, the wall fell on Russia. For a number of years, these people were in a tremendous amount of shock. They just couldn't explain. They had to explain, you know, the, the end of a dream. Um, and now there's a kind of return uh, of, of, uh, of uh, maybe morale or, or to some extent um, recommitment. And they, in fact, what has happened in, 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 in Europe uh, to some extent, it's very interesting. Here is that the is is that the left has been free. Some elements of the left. Two things have happened. First of all, the fractiousness of the left has gone. One of the reasons. Let me rephrase it. When the Soviet Union supported the Arab states against Israel, right? One some of the groups who were either neutral or thought it would even would say a good word for Israel were the Trotskyists. Is basically they wanted to frustrate the Communist Party. So they, you know, it's a kind of you know, my Balkan politics. My enemy's enemy is my friend. So in, in, in the nineteen, in the late, at least in the, around the sixty-seven war, you found quite a few Trotskyists, and before around seventy-three as well, the Soviet people who's, who's it depended if you hated imperialism more than you hated the Soviet Union, and that depended who who who'd shot who, who who'd shot your friends, right? I mean, we're talking about real politics here. And purges and things like that. Um, so that's that's an important issue. Now, the elimination, the implosion of the Soviet Union has had first of all demoralised the left, but in fact has made it easier because you now no longer have a living example of socialism in action to be <laughs> for people to turn to and say, "Well, if it's so wonderful, you know, why is this? If imperialism's so bad, what about anti, you know, the anti-imperialism?" So if actually and the present moment, it's freed up, and that's led, led to a lot of um, thinking, especially around the issue of, of, of in, 
so-called imperialism and globalization and things like that. Um, it was very difficult to argue some of these, put some of these arguments in in a situation of two superpowers competing. You know? you know, you've got Ethiopia, I've got Somalia, and then now we swap. You know, which was going on. It was very difficult to talk about a third world in that kind of thing. It's now freed up a lot of these people to actually concentrate on the one superpower. Now, the other side, the conservative side of it is, is there's tremendous feeling that the uh, free market liberalism and the fall of the Soviet Union has undermined the concept of, of communitarianism, if you want to call it that, or socialism and things like that. And there's a great feeling of, of that, that um, any group of people who believes that the, you know, let me, let me rephrase it. To me, one of the arguments of, of a conservative group of people is people who look back to a golden age, right, rather than to a future, right? The tradition on the left was that the future belongs to, you know, the answer you said, the future belongs to us, but the future was then, it was an inexorable um, yeah, uh, trajectory which, you know, would, would, would bring us, you know, um, bring these people to power and all this stuff. Um, the feeling that, that um, uh, the wrong people are running the world now, right? And some of our, and there have been, you know, sort of uh, reverses and things like that, is, uh, is, is, is part of the kind of resentment, if you want to call it that, and kind of conservatism is part of a, of, a, of a nostalgia for a different, for, for, for a past. Um, and also, the, 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 as I said, the economic situation of some of the people has been, some of the people been downturn. I mean, you know, sort of, let's exactly, if I was running a newspaper today in the United States, I would also be relatively conservative and anti-modernist person because newspapers are in trouble, right? They had a glorious past. It's, you know, they're sacking people. If I were a newspaper journalist, I would be concerned about new technologies and new ways and things like that. It's, you know, it's a declining business. So I'm a bit like blacksmiths faced, faced by the motor car. I'm wondering to what extent um, the uh, rise of uh, Judeophobia and this uh, new extremism you've been referring to could really just uh, be seen as a natural reflection of demographic shifts in Europe. You have had over the past uh, couple of decades, you know, waves of uh, immigrants coming into Europe as guest workers or uh, new citizens from North Africa, from other Muslim countries. Among those groups, uh, anti-Semitism is just, as a statistical matter, much higher. Uh, even if there are fewer in number than their non-Muslim counterparts in the countries which they go to, the disproportionate noise, as it were, that comes out of those groups is going to be much, much larger. At a certain point, and certainly I think this is easily argued to be correct in, in very specific, you know, constituencies, writings, I mean, you know, the, the, the the piece in London that George Galloway won and so forth. It just becomes a natural inclination to pander to the uh, population which is making the most noise. And so I guess what I'm saying is, is that maybe what's happening here is a lot of this is just sort of a reflection of new demographics in these countries. And the one other thing is I, I really do agree with the comment you made earlier about uh, the rise of technology, in particular the internet, satellite television, and so forth, that makes it so much easier for everybody to sort of see everything at the same time, which means that you know, 
any, if there's a particular item which is viewed as particularly offensive by some group, it's going to be viewed at the same time by people everywhere. So that exacerbates things, that accelerates things. But I'm just wondering whether or not you can, you know, a lot of this is just sort of coming with the territory, as it were. Well, demographic you, yeah, I mean, you've got the example of Galloway, uh, the poor uh, man, because of Mosley. Um, but, but the, but the um, I don't, I, I, there's very little electoral evidence for what you're talking about. One of them is, is that these people don't vote or they're not citizens and things like that. And so they, they, in terms of the numbers, they're not as obvious. Now, if you see it as a, a zero-sum game between Jews and Muslims, right? Well, obviously, if, if you know Jewish, Jewish voting numbers have been eliminated since 1940, um, you know, so you know, so you haven't really got many voters left in many places, uh, and, and you've got all these people. So if you see that, you know, so that is, yeah. But I, I mean, you know, I'm a pre no, My point would be I'm a pre I, I situation. It, it doesn't have to be literal votes. No. It's more a matter of whose issues do you cater to. Yeah. And so it's, think, think of it as cost minimization. Yeah. <laughs> Influence and arrest it. You know, so, but, right. I mean, the argument would then be, see, the problem, if you go down that argument, is that, you know, and we'll go back to it, that 20, 30 years ago, these people did pander to Zionist uh, um, thinking, and now they've you know, seen the better of the ways, or they're pandering to another group of people. It suggests that, uh, you know, politicians are either manipulated or, or um, have, have no principles whatsoever, you know. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, there's a certain argument here. Um, that you have to be, you have to be aware, and you know when you use when you know when we use them, that people say, well, that's not true. I, you know, I really do believe uh, um, in, in something, and it's not I'm, you know, just doing it because uh, Mr. Ali wrote to me and said, that, you know, I had to do this. Um, I, I, I think you're correct. That there's, there's a feeling amongst some people that that um, that the uh, the Muslims. What? Well, let me let me. One one of the things that is actually um, Increase the morale of the left. And it's very interesting. The far left, the Trotskyites especially, communists have got more of a problem with it, has been to see the, the, the new un Muslim underclass as a kind of shock troops of the revolution. They have given up on the white working class, right, in Britain and France and everywhere else. I mean, the buggers either go to, you know, either got cars and go to Spain for their holidays or they join the National Front. You know, I mean, they, you know, the ones who fail to the National Front, the ones who do well become, you know, sort of respectable and, and, and sort of become part of the, you know, bourgeoisie or the petty bourgeoisie or consumers anyway. Um, so they're lost. And so you're looking for a new group of, of things. So that is, that, that's what creates the, the, a, a climate there. And there, I think, it does have, has an effect, especially, uh, but it's not having a great effect in electoral politics. It is in these areas that I'm talking about. It's in the media. It is in the things that the communities I was dealing with are made uncomfortable by is the news broadcasts, the newspapers, the, the demonstrations, the, the films, the radio stations, and then, you know, so the BBC, for instance, um, I think the classic thing. Um, it's in the book, the classic thing. They, they, they have what is known as the promenade concerts at the Albert Hall. And in the interval there, they had somebody talking about, um, some correspondent talking about their kind of a walking remodel or something like that, you know, sort of, it's two years ago in the middle. There's a kind of entertainment. They had 15 minutes between, you know, Rokofiev and Mozart, and they decided to shove in somebody talking about their, their own correspondent talking about a walking remodel and speaking to Arabs on the street about how miserable their lives are. 
as a result of the Jewish, you know, Israeli government and their wicked policies. Um, and, and they were not um, in any way um, sort of uh, inarticulate. Um, luckily, they found the six people who speak English. And it's, it's remarkable. That, you know. But um, so you know, but um, there's that kind of thing. That's what making many of things. I mean, you know, the, the idea that. Um, that you can have large numbers of Muslim cabinet ministers or anything like that. I mean, as you know, I mean, really part one. Britain has got 12 people of ethnic origin, I think three, two or three are Muslims, you know, 635 in the House of Commons. Uh, France has got exactly zero. Um, uh, Belgium has got one, Germany's got two. I mean, you know, it's gonna, at this rate, you know, it's a, it'll be a thousand years. Um, but that's part of it. It doesn't mean to say, because, and this is very important to see. You see, your whole point about a zero-sum game, right? You've decided it's all about Israel and Western. The fact is that you can be an equal opportunity. You can make life miserable for left-handed people, ginger-haired people, and Jews, right? You can be nasty to these people. And it still hurts Jewish people, even if you don't hurt others. And you hurt others at the same time. Or, right, I mean, it's like hospital triage. You know, I've got a broken leg, and you, you've got a pancreatic ulcer or something. You know, I, you know, you go first, but it doesn't mean to say I'm not hurting. Right? So this is very important to realize that we have to get this, in, this back into a situation where we look at these forms of prejudice, that extremism is a bad thing, right? which is where I began. It is not a good thing. Voting for these far, far left and far right political parties, supporting them in France, doesn't strike me as making a pleasant life for many, many people. We have a... It's a track record that this ain't good for anybody, never mind the Jews. The Jews might be the first ones. Second thing is that anti-Semitism thing is not usually. It's, it, it, you know, the Jews more than other people, but it does create eventually an atmosphere in society, right? We're picking on people and, you know, it's like bullying, you know. I decide to bully her, but it, it, once the whole class decides bullying is a good thing, you aren't going to be, you know, so safe after all. So you have to see this in, 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 as, a, as a moral issue as much as anything else, I think. Um, and I think, and this is the arguments we're trying to make out there, that in fact, you know, it's, it's not just a Jewish problem. Right? And, and I think that's this is very important to get over to people who they think who are terribly outraged by Israel and its war, right? So you think the worst thing in the world is, is a wall or separation fence and the rest of it. But is your reaction to that war, is your, are the consequences of the outcomes and, and, and your act, you know, um, are they, are they um, a precedent for other people getting terribly excited about other things, which eventually creates a world where you know, everybody's you know, fetching about something, but they move from fetching to you know, murder is, is, is the problem. Um, I wonder to what extent the decline in the situation of Jews in Europe is related uh, to anti-Americanism. In this country, uh, there are some people who say that uh, the fortunes of America and the Middle East have been affected by Israel. If we didn't support Israel, uh, then America would have a much better standing among, uh, among Arab countries. But in this case, I'm wondering to what extent the fortune of Jews is actually affected by the fact that Jews are somehow seen as being uh, in league with America, as America's uh, maybe uh, 
representatives not not uh, that they're on the front lines uh, that uh, they are actually uh, the beneficiaries of American power. Right. Well, there's two people. I guess the kind of like the other. Sorry, the optimists and the pessimists. I mean, the, you know, there are two groups of people. One believe that, that, that uh, America uses Israel as a surrogate, and a, you know, sort of a kind of a spot for its own ends and the rest of that. Um, and they're the moderates. And the other people believe that Israel and the Jews control the United States, and, and, and I guess that's the other side. And again, that has a long history, right? You read Mein Kampf, that's what, you know, it's there. Uh, Marshall Petter, right, has spent all his time in uh, 41 and 42, attacking the Anglo-Saxons who were under the influence and control of the Jews. Down the Anglo-Saxon powers, you know, sort of Roosevelt and Churchill were, were jumping at the, uh, I don't know if you imagine Churchill jumping, but I mean, uh, you know, actually, you know, jumping, at, you know, when, when told how high by the Jews, or quite high. I mean, this, this, was, this, is, this has a long history this kind of anti-Americanism with the Jews. Right, that you have this, and then come on the right, it's all about a Negroid, multicultural, you know, multi-racial America and all the rest of it. Um, and because they have this, I mean, and the, the interesting thing is, it comes back to some of this biological racism. Because the Jews are innately clever, right? They are manipulative, they're clever, they're satanic, but they've got the brain power, you know? And these people are, 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 are willing to accept that Jews have got brains, right? But you know, it's, it, 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 it's but it, these brains are used against the, you know, to uh, against are detrimental to the rest of mankind in their eyes. But you don't deny the abilities of Jews. Um, so that the Jews have this, so therefore they're, they're in, you know they, they are in control. So you have these, you know, you have this idea that that that, um, that, that is. And, and you, it comes out in the diplomatic thing, you know, that sort of, again, sort of, sort of the Israel government, you should know, a, a, uh, you read in reasonably respectable magazines, not on the mainstream, but already said that when Sharon goes to Bush, he's going to give him his orders, you know, mm, right. that, you know that kind of thing, to tell him what to do and things like that. So you, you get that out, and it's a kind of conspiracy thing. And then, of course, what, what, what did come out very clearly in Austria is this insidious thing, and this is where the Jewish stuff and the, and, and the conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories have been very strong on the left and the right, right? Mainly because the right wing have always believed in them for a satanic reasoning. But the left, if you remember it, any group of people that operates on a cell system, which is what most left-wing far-left parties did for a hundred years, right? Party cells and all the rest of it, where you got messages and, and have a revolutionary, violent revolutionary tradition, or is really conspiracy. I mean, Lenin was a great believer in that. And he operated, and as you know, as an agent of the Germans when he went back in a closed wagon to uh, from Petersburg. <coughs> um, so, you know, they, they, they believe in a worldview where conspiracy is involved. And what seemed to have a big effect in 2002, 2003, was the neoconservatives. This was it. Neocon meant the elders of Zion. And, and, and Europe, I mean, that got in, right into the mainstream um, uh, of, of uh, I don't think there was any newspaper that didn't refer to the Jewish influence and the neocons wanting a war and the neocons operating on behalf of, of Israel and uh, getting their orders from that. See, then then your, um, I accept your idea that racism 
as it existed in the 1930s and 40s does not exist that way now. But the fact is that any Jew who, any Jewish neocon, however connected he is to the Jewish people or not, is seen as a Jew. The, that, so it may not be biological racism, but it's that every one of the Jews is part of a collectivity. That's not true. That is, that is the whole point of exceptions are made. The point was, to, to Hitler, even Noam Chomsky would be, would be somebody who was trying to follow it. But these people are willing to say there are good Jews. There are Chomskys. Even Michael learns to some extent, coming back to that. So they're many to make exceptions. And once you do that, the no. exception proves rule. So it's not biological. It's not every I'm Jew. I'm not arguing has this that it's biological. Yeah. Uh, but I'm arguing that anti Semitism really. Uh, they made, and, and even Hitler had his good Jews. Uh, he made, he allowed, uh, he, he was able to make Jews into honorary Aryans. It's the idea that you could, that if you are a Jew, you function as a member of a collectivity and a collectivity that is, may not be biologically different, but it is inalterably other. It doesn't belong. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the far extremes, you have to say that.